Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajj Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I will reiterate for you and our old-time, long-time listeners that Ben and I are friends. We're also automotive journalists, and we have a lot to talk about this week. Right, Ben? Two of those three things are true. <laughs> and, um, we'll start, as always, by asking Ben to tell people where they can find his most recent stories. Go for it, Ben. You can find my work at Motor Trend, at Car and Driver, at Inside Hook, and at Driving Line. Thank you, but don't go and check those out right now. What we really want, what we really want, is for you to listen to our podcast, right, Ben? That's right. Or maybe go check where Sammy's work has been popping up lately. Yeah, you can find my work at Autotrader.ca as well as Driving.ca, Nouveau Magazine, and TechSpot. Ben, I want. I'm going to hand the reins off to you right away. In fact, I'm throwing them your way. Because I want to talk about whatever car you've been driving recently, because it's a, it's a good one, right? Well, I just clumsily avoided the reins you threw in my direction, and they're oh, lying no. on the lying on the floor beside me. But I will I will discuss the vehicle I drove last week, and that is the 2022 Hyundai Kona N Line. Okay, so we went from an episode of having um, nothing but like like. Uh, Wait, what did, what did we talk about last week? We talked about a, an, an end product, Sammy, but it wasn't a N-line product. So this is where things start to get a little confusing. Um, you know yeah. how BMW and AM, Mercedes AMG, they have these, you know, the full version of their high-performance cars, and then they have like a sub-version of those cars that is mostly a performance look rather than actual horsepower or suspension? I mean, you get a little bit extra, right? But it's it's primarily about style and attitude with a little bit of extra uh, performance thrown in. So now I that love every style and attitude, What's... I think more cars should just come with style and attitude. Is there an S and A package for all cars? They should, that should the S and A package. I mean, I I I, I mean, why not? I, I remember in the nineties when um, Pontiac had the Firebird and they had the the, the Firehawk version of the Trans Am, and it had that giant yeah. snout that, like, went on the hood. The huge, like, huge hood scoop. Absurdly huge. Am I insane? I thought that was just the regular Trans Am. No, no, the Firehawk or the WS6, it had, like, an even oh, yeah. crazier scoop on the hood. I think that would be the perfect uh, style and attitude package. Mm. But um, getting back to modern era, every car not, company not has... no style and attitude. Well, every car company has this single-letter performance thing now, and a lot of them are... S- diluting that by creating these various iterations that aren't necessarily about performance but are meant to evoke performance. Hyundai is doing that with the Kona, but the weird thing is they kind of went about it backwards. So we know that the Veloster N is a vehicle that is real and in fact is the only version of the Veloster that's out there. But there's no actual Kona N yet. So the Kona is only available right now in N-Line. The N is coming this year. I don't think it's at dealerships yet, but they, they, they hit us with the N-Line first. And what the N-Line does is make you think you're looking at a Kona N, but it doesn't change anything else about the vehicle. It is purely style. Okay. So instead, like, in, it, it is a step up over the base models. There's like the SC and the SEL, I guess. And yeah. those have like a, a normal, naturally aspirated four-cylinder you get a turbocharged engine in the Kona N-Line. This is uh, just for people who aren't familiar. It's a, it's a small crossover. Uh, but the engine that you get with the N-Line, it's exactly the same as the Limited, which is the top version of the vehicle. There, there's no difference. Right. The suspension, also the same. Um, 
if you get all-wheel drive, you get a multi-link rear, rear axle instead of the torsion bar system. But that's also true of the Limited. So the, the only thing that makes the N-Line the N-Line is all the end badges all over, like on the shifter, on the steering wheel, inside, on the side of the vehicle, on the grill. Uh, it, and then it has different wheels, and it has a these three slits that are like cut into the leading edge of the hood. Yeah. And the bumpers at the back are a little different, but and you get as, double as exhaust. As far as I can tell, those three slits are like, they're not real. They're not like open or no, something. No, it's just style. As... It's purely they're style. Just... That's the style in the style and attitude yeah. package. So e- everything about this vehicle is uh, is style and attitude. It's it's a it's a bargain basement ripoff of the N model. Yeah, I wouldn't say that. I would say that, is that, you, was that too critical? Sorry. It gives you all the appearance of the N model without any of the performance, which is kind of weird because I would think that I mean at least with BMW and Mercedes AMG, the non full M and AMG models. You still get a little something extra, right? Like you get at least a handling package, yeah, or, or like, like a louder brake, exhaust brake, or something. One brake caliper being bigger than the others. You don't even get recalibrated drive modes with the N line. It's the <laughs> same thing: sport, normal, and eco, basically, or smart, whatever they call it at Hyundai. So it's kind of strange. It's it's like a it's I guess a way of doing like the mid tier trim package for your your compact crossover. And making it different from base, and then saving money because it's the same drivetrain as your top tier. And you just make it look a little different. Now, I think my biggest worry is that there is, they're presenting this N-Line model without establishing the N-Brand first, right? Yes, exactly. We have the M-Brand established with Veloster, but we don't have it with Kona. So it is kind of confusing. That's what you meant by going backwards. Yes. I thought by, go, by doing things backwards, you meant... Well, the regular Kona, super powerful, really sporty, N-line version, completely went, completely wonky. Yeah. Right? That's backwards to me. Okay. Well, I can't help you with your uh, situation. (laughs) I know, I know. I'll just grow up and get better at it, I guess. Um, But, like, overall, I have to admit, like, the Kona is among the better compact um, crossovers out there, right? Like, I definitely like it more than that Corolla Cross we, we talked about really briefly a while back. Um, I like it more than, uh, say, the Seltos or what else is out there? The the CX-30? Like, I think this is a pretty good um, compact crossover. So I think even making a, giving it some style um, or some attitude-like style will is a good thing for it. Yeah, I agree. I like the crossover as well. I mean, there's things I don't like about it. But in general, I think it's a pretty compelling package. I just... It's strange to me that Hyundai, which has done so well so far at giving us interesting versions of its vehicles. Or, I mean, the Veloster N is super cool. There, there was never a Veloster N line. I think it, it, we got the Veloster Turbo. Uh, yeah, which, they did that weird, too. They went Veloster, Veloster Turbo, and, Vel- and Veloster N, right? Like That makes sense to me because that's a natural progression. Right. Uh, so I just – why the 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 – there's, there is some stuff you do get with this engine that you didn't get the year before. So it's the same 1.6 liter turbo four that you could get in 2021, but they gave it another, I think, 20 horsepower for this year, which brings it up to 195 horsepower and it has 195 pound feet of torque. And it also has a DCT. Mm. Um, so the, it, does the regular model have a DCT? I think not the base. The base is a CVT. Oof. Okay. So it is quite different from the base model. 
But the DCT itself, unless it's in sport mode, it acts a lot like a slush box. Like it, it acts a lot like it has a tor- torque converter. It has some rev hang. It's not particularly snappy, especially compared to after having driven the Veloster and the, the week before, going back to back in those two vehicles, it was quite obvious that this is a different situation. Um, but overall, like it's enough power for the size of the crossover. The handling is decent, although it does tend to push in corners, which is yeah. normal. I mean, this it's again, it's not set up for performance, even though it looks like it's set up for performance. So you're going to have to attenuate your expectations in terms of how much fun you can actually have with it. But it's 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 not boring to drive. It's just, I would say, the high side of average. The high side of average. Okay, yeah. well, I mean, at least... It, it 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 sets out to provide silent attitude. You mentioned that it achieves silent attitude. I think right? on the on the did outside a, for did sure. You have a red one? Did you have a blue one? Was it cool looking at all? I had a blue one. It looked good. Yeah, the but blue on the, was sharp. One thing I wasn't super into though. Uh, the silent attitude kind of stops when you get inside the vehicle. Oh no! It's it's very plain inside, and the biggest issue I had was ergonomics on the driver are not that great i had a tr- i had trouble maintaining oh here we go with your large torso situation long small, torso it's long torso thanks long. for correcting yourself <laughs> but it, no it has nothing to do with that i just had trouble getting a consistent driving position where i felt comfortable but mm-hmm. the bigger issue was the uh driver's side on the door panel armrest was hard as a rock and it was really uncomfortable i did a four-hour road trip in the vehicle and by the end of like the first hour and a half, my elbow just wanted to fall off. It was really bad. I kept trying to find like a way to kind of tuck my arm in against the door panel and anything to avoid contact. And I was unsuccessful. Dang, that's tough. It's I mean, weird because it's, I, I don't, I can't think of another vehicle I've driven recently where that was an issue. Where you like oh, had to avoid using the armrest just to survive a road trip. Yeah, yeah? like exactly. that's wild. That that's a comp- that is a compromise, and I I, I think. Anybody listening, if they are in the market for something like the Kona, you definitely have to feel that that armrest out and see if that suits you. Because I agree I, that can be a that can be a uh, like what is it? Buzz death kill? by a thousand a de- death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. Like yeah. that tiny. That is one of the things that that'll really mess up your entire ownership experience because you'll have nowhere to put your elbow for like the entirety of your your ownership with it. There's also some weird stuff when it comes to features with the Kona. So if you kind of Look through the ordering process for this crossover. The end line is essentially the limited minus the... T- so the end line can have something called the tech package. And okay. once you add the tech package, you're basically the same as a limited. Uh, the limited, the only real difference that I can tell is you also get leather. So the tech package itself is, I think, $2,500. And you get the bigger version of the touchscreen infotainment system for the car. You get, like, a, a different stereo. I think it's Harman Kardon. You get a sunroof and adaptive cruise control. Um, I didn't have those features. I'm not sure whether I'd want to spend... The base price of the Kona N is $2,500. I'm not nice. sure if I'd want to spend another 2500 on that gear. I don't know how much better I would have liked the vehicle. I don't want the sunroof... Adaptive cruise is nice if you're in traffic, but the stereo and the touchscreen, probably neither here nor there for this vehicle. So it's kind of a compromise where you can almost get the limited and have the sporty looks, or you can go with the limited and have kind of the blander look. That's, I think, the um, the value proposition that Hyundai's making with this. Okay, hold on. I'm just taking a closer look at comparing the N-Line to the, to the limited. And that, the the visual impact of, 
painting in those um, those black fenders, those fender flares, makes a pretty big. It makes a big difference. Suddenly, the Kona goes from looking like a a weird kind of crossover that doesn't look like it'll manage to go over a curb into like a sporty looking hatchback rather than a crossover altogether. And I think that's that's a pretty successful style and attitude adjust, adjustment. If we're going to keep using that that phrase. Yeah, and you know, if you look at the pricing too, like that yeah. tech package is 2500 bucks, but if you go up to the limited, it's 3000, I think. So the pricing is almost exactly the same. So you you truly are getting like that visual appeal of like something that looks more like a car than a crossover. Yeah, and and the the mid trim, the SEL uh, Kona is again three thousand less than the end line, so that kind of mm-hmm. has that gap in between them all. I think all wheel drive is fifteen hundred dollars. You're gonna definitely want that, not necessarily because it's amazing in the snow. I I found it to be okay. It's kind of a slip and grip system. You can lock it into fifty fifty, and when you do that, you don't. I didn't have any issue. We got a, a pretty big snow dump when I had the vehicle, okay. and I was able to get in and out of my alley, which is always my test because it's not well plowed, and you know, six seven inches of snow can kind of be a big deal in a tight space. Uh, but with the the all wheel drive locked, I didn't have any wheel spin. With the all wheel drive just set to its normal setting. Yeah, there were times where the car had a little bit of an issue. I never got stuck, but it didn't feel super confident. Uh, the, the biggest problem I had with the car in the snow was the wheel design. It sucked so much snow into the spokes that I had to stop two or three times on my road trip to clean them out and try to get like inside where the snow had frozen onto the oh, interior that's of the rim. The worst. Yeah, and because it's a very intricate rim, it was grabbing snow in like tight spaces. So that's kind of annoying. But uh, in any case, uh, you were going to want the all-wheel drive because you're going to get that better rear end, the better suspension for the rear end. And I think if you're at all interested in any kind of enthusiastic driving and you want an end line for that reason, without the all-wheel drive, you'll be disappointed even more. I'm looking at this this future for Hyundai where things come in end lines and ends. So I believe the end line is coming to the Tucson now. Um, no word about the Santa Fe or the Santa Cruz or even the Palisade. Um, is this like, what is the story here? Do you think it's only going to be reserved for sort of small, do you like, how would you feel if it was reserved for like smaller cars or compact cars? Or do you think the end line should be something that's available all throughout the range? I have no real feelings on it. I mean, it's just an appearance package, so they can do whatever they want. It, It doesn't really mean anything. That's the problem, right? Like, it doesn't really mean anything. Is a significant issue to have with a pro- with products, right? Yeah, like, and if you haven't established the end brand, which I don't think Hyundai has, then it's difficult to really get excited about N-Line if it brings nothing to the table other than appearance. I thought they have established themselves. They have, like, a sort of racing division out there that's doing stuff in a bunch of different... Um, not the big names, right? Like, not the massive... You know, it's not NASCAR or, or Formula One... But it is in, like, rally racing. I swear they used to have a World Challenge or whatever World Challenge is these days. Yeah, but all that stuff is basically European-facing. I think they use the I-30 in rally. Right. Uh, So if you look at the showroom in North America, what do they really have? They had the Veloster N, which is an endangered species. They have the Elantra N. And Mm -hmm. now they're going to have the Kona N. So I still say they're in the establishing things segment or section of their history. Yeah, they've they've still got a little bit more to go, and it really, I mean, they they've done a great job of yeah. Here, I've got a list of their their developments here. Um, touring car, uh, TCR racers based on the upcoming Elantra N, uh, IMSA. So 
they're doing their thing. Basically, a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't really matter in North America. Yeah, I mean, I don't is is TCR really not that popular here? TCR mm. touring car racing. Yeah, yeah, it's a hundred percent not popular. Oh no! How many people do you know who watch it? Do you watch it? No. Than only me. So I'm just saying, it's like, that's a very... Or not even me. I only watch it when it's like in town. I only go to watch it. It's a niche right. form of racing. Um, right. I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm just saying I don't happen to watch. I don't really watch any racing these days. I've, I was once a big NASCAR guy when I was younger, and it hasn't been good for like at least 15 years. Um, I was never an open wheel guy. I like watching rally, but uh, I, I prefer to be on the track than watching it unless I'm there in person, I guess. Right. Um, I think we'll talk a little bit more about your snow dump a little bit later, but anything else you want to talk about the N-Line Kona? Do you, do you, is this the first sportier compact, uh, subcompact crossover right now in the market? Like, you can't get the... I don't know if the trailblazer It's not sporty. Already. It's not sporty at all. <laughs> okay. Is it the... Like, if you look at the other subcompact crossovers with style and attitude... The Trailblazer RS comes up to mind, and I don't think that's that important. No, I think it's... That's not worth talking about. I think it's fine. I mean, there's there's nothing to... There's no reason to not drive it Mm -hmm. um, if you're in the market for this kind of vehicle. It's decent value, and it's reliable. It's got a good warranty, and it looks pretty good. So in this segment, you're not going to get something fun until this real Kona N comes out, which is coming out really soon, maybe even in a couple weeks. Uh, and at that point, you're in a totally different world because I think that's coming with like 280 horsepower or something like that. Yeah, I think you're right. I might just, I feel like I'm blanking out entirely on this segment, which I think has grown significantly over the past two years. Well, I mean, like, it's something like the HRV, them. right? Like, I mean. Yeah, is there going to be an HRV sport? There is an HRV not. sport, yeah, but, but it isn't real. really anything no. for. It's not an SI, right? Like, it's no, not it's a not a, It's not even style and attitude. <laughs> that's true. Um,. Okay, I want to quickly talk about uh, a Honda Civic hatchback that I drove. Ooh. Um, yeah, I know. I've been driving some Hondas recently. Yeah, so. almost like you've only been driving Hondas. That Well, two in a row. That's it, really. Okay. Just, so far. Yeah, so far. Um, Honda Civic hatchback. First of all, I've got to talk about the styling of hatchbacks now. This is not a hatchback. This is a, this is a sportback. It is a sedan with an inflated rear end. And it just doesn't look right. It doesn't look like a hatchback to me. Have you seen these things? Like, they just don't look... I don't know what the deal is now. What happened here? It's probably just cheaper to build it that way. To build it like like that? Really? Yeah, I mean, it's easier tooling. It's the same body as a sedan. And they just graph something on the back. It's like, I remember reading... There's a really good book. um, uh, I don't believe you. I want to say it's by Mary Walsh. I always forget her last name. In any case, it's called Car... And it was about the the decisions that were made when they made the second generation Ford Taurus. Because the, the first gen was a super popular vehicle for Ford. And right. then the early 90s happened. And, you know, Camry got super competitive. Accord got super competitive. So they made the the, the bubble, the jelly bean uh, yeah. Taurus, which was not popular. And when they were talking about uh, building the wagon, they they decided not to do one. And until like a year or so into development of the car... <laughs> And by then, it was too late to do anything um, in terms of design. So they just created this, like, section of metal they could graft onto the back of the sedan. And it was not the most elegant thing. And that's kind of what I think you're talking about when you talk about these hatchbacks that have kind of like a a bulbous inflated rear where it's just like – it's the sedan plus more kind of. Yeah, it is more of that sport back look that was first popularized by, say, like the – what's it called? The – Audi A7 or um, A5 Sportback, that kind of look that yeah. isn't quite 
look, I get the roof is is uh, hinged at the. I mean, the trunk is hinged at the roof, but like the rest of the car doesn't look that like wagon that hatchback wagony look. If I if um, I'm not mistaken, it looks a bit. I'm I'm pulling up a picture right now, but it looks a bit like the DeLorean from like. Uh, from uh, Back to the Future, where they stuck the jetpacks on the back. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, okay. All so, right. that's, I mean, I drove it. It drives essentially the same as a Civic Touring. Um, I drove the Sport Touring model, which means it has a 1.5 liter turbocharged engine. It makes 180 horsepower, and it feels pretty good. So, 20 horsepower dro- less than the SI. Yeah. Wow. Remember, we, remember, we remember these calculations, right? The SI can't go any further than 200 Horsepower or 205 when they're but a base of it can go up to 199 (laughs) essentially. Um, and uh, I was fortunate to have one with a manual transmission. Um, yo, Honda makes some of their slickest manuals, um, I've used in a while. Like, it really is a very smooth shifting, um, notchy shifter. The only problem is the clutch has zero, is like flappy, it is like a switch. There's really zero feedback to the clutch, it's really light. Um, it's really kind of wimpy to use at times and like, it feels really commuter car in that way, but the rest of the car drives pretty nice. Uh, very smooth. That turbocharged engine gets going nicely and the cabin is really solid. Um, I also want to talk about another car that I drove, which was the, which is not available in in the U S it's the Forte five, specifically the GT model, which was also a manual was also a hatchback. Um, Additionally, it has that weird like uh, rear end that makes it look like a sportback rather than a than an actual hatchback. Um, uses a 1.6 liter turbocharged four, uh, similar to I think your Kona. It makes uh, 200 horsepower, 195 pound feet of torque. Feels really good. It feels closer to a GTI than it would the Civic hatchback. But then, um, and the exterior styling actually, like from a distance, this thing looks like a BMW. It's a shame that this isn't available in, in the U.S., but I think the strategy for all, for all North Americans, uh, North American automakers or products is to just ditch sedans and go hatchbacks. Uh, go, what am I talking about? Crossovers. So we might have to pour one out for the Forte 5. In the well, future. I think that's what's going to happen at Hyundai as well. I think the Veloster N is going to be replaced by the Kona N, right? Which is kind of yeah. what we talked about last week. Yeah. And then, then there won't be any Velocitors, period. So then, then there go Hyundai. I, they still make a hatchback version of the Accent, don't they? Uh, I'm sure they they should. I is there a, they do. Is there a hatchback version? No, of, they don't, man. Is there a hatchback version of the Elantra? Mm, nope. Okay, because they used to make the GT. No. So, yeah, no more hatches, just crossovers for everybody. I think the Ionic is the coolest thing to hatchback. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And that's essentially a crossover from what Chad's told us in that in our previous episode. And then, like, when you go to the Kia side, same thing. They've got uh, Saltos. They've got Nero. They've got Sportage or Sportage. They've got, like, three. And the and they've got, like, and the Soul, right? Like, they've got a bunch of, like, crossover things they want to sell you rather than a Forte or Forte 5. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, I, it's. It's an interesting comparison. I'm, I did that for a, a Canadian publication, which is why I had such a Canadian-focused automobile. But uh, hatchbacks are, are are both in and out. Honda is still committing to it uh, and offering it with uh, the Sport Touring trim. And it feels pretty good on the road. It feels very much like a, like a Touring model. So if you do need that extra storage space, you can kind of get it. It's not 
fantastic. I think the the trunk space in this um, Civic hatch. It is. I had the number in front of me, and I will tell. I will recite it to you. Twenty. I think twenty five. Yeah, twenty four point uh, five cubic feet. It's not massive, but it's also it's not limiting. The other thing is the um, the cover for it is this like sheet. Is not. It is not a. And it's a sheet that you pull from left to right rather than from the seats to the to the opening of the hatch opening. Does that mean you can't remove the uh, cover? Completely? No, it like retracts like a blind into the into the side of the car. Huh. Does it yeah. take up space when you're not using it? Nope. Okay. Not well, really. Not so bad. But it, you can't like stack anything in it on top of it or anything like that. I guess it's not like a, I don't know if anyone was really doing Do that. Do you but. stack stuff on top of your cargo covers? I don't want to talk about it. Maybe it seems like really precarious. Like something that's just going to like fly into the back of your head when you break hard. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. That's what you're I into. Like, I like that danger. The element of danger. Um, it just seems a little. It just seems a little different than what I was expecting. Um, because usually you see these cargo covers and they're massive. Like they're these big pieces of, uh, of fabric or or cardboard that cover um, the the contents of the cargo to yeah. the window but the cargo now cover window... is just something i have to take off when i have a bulky item and then i have suddenly i have two bulky items to deal with and yep. i have to leave the cargo cover somewhere and it's always a hassle i'm not a big fan i have okay. one for my jeep that's like super rare apparently and I, I don't use it this is well this one is it's very short it's very small it's um convenient in that way it just seems like a very weird sort of solution but i guess the job done so kudos to kudos on thinking outside the box there i would like to see more sideways Maybe I would like to see more side, left to right sort of cargo covers rather than the front to the yeah front to back ones. Strong statement. Um, all right, let's uh, keep talking. Well, first of all, do you have any questions about the Civic? I do not. I feel like we really explored the Civic over the last what? couple of weeks. I feel like I know the Civic better than I know myself at this point. Yes. And what about the Kia? Anything you want to talk about Kia's web? No. No. Uh, okay, then let's keep talking. We both had a very significant, and I'm sure we're not the only ones, we had a pretty significant dump of snow recently, um, and I saw a lot of uh, uh, unique driving behavior, which I don't think is conducive to safety in the snow. What do you think? Well, um, I, I thought that we could take some time to uh, revisit our uh, performance driving segment that we did last month, and it, it applies to snow, but it applies to basically all forms of driving, especially if you're driving quickly. And I, I wanted to talk about um, inputs, specifically steering inputs, but also mm -hmm. throttle and brake inputs and how that affects driving when you're in a snowy situation where traction is low or when you're driving very quickly and you're dealing with momentum in a way that maybe you're not on the on the street. Okay, I, I dig that. I think it's. I think you're you're right on the money with this. I think smooth um, inputs are something that's uh, that's slowly being, you know, people don't think about that all too often on the on the roads. They just, especially with the amount of automatic transmissions or, um, like people just hammer the the throttle and, and go for it, right? Well, the the thing that that strikes me is when I first started getting into performance driving and we we talked about this in our previous segment where we talked about how you know we had the friction circle and there were only, there's only so much that your tires can handle whether it's accelerating or braking or steering and you kind of have to decide how to balance all of that out but you can also introduce the idea of momentum into that equation and when I first started out in performance driving I got into autocross and autocross was great because it was a really cheap way to learn how to drive quickly 
For those of you who aren't familiar, autocross is you, you get a big parking lot of some nature, whether it's a mall parking lot or I used to do it in an old Air Force base. And you set up a track that or a course that is delineated by pylons. And the, the course has different elements like sharp turns, S's, um, something called a Chicago box where you get in and out of a very narrow section of track quickly. You'll have a straightaway. And the whole goal is to obviously do it as quickly as possible. But what you're really doing in autocross is you're co- connecting different segments of a course together the most <clears throat> efficient way to, possible. And the speeds are generally pretty low. If you have a longer course, I, I would sometimes run with clubs that had larger, heavier, or higher horsepower cars. And they would do longer courses. But in general, speeds are below 60 miles an hour. And you're... The, the courses are tight to the point where you end up throwing the car around, whether it's with a parking brake uh, or whether it's just with a stabbing at the brakes and throttle or, you know, very quickly introducing steering inputs. You unsettle the car so that you can point it in a new direction very rapidly, kind of like what you would see in um, rally racing. Yeah. Where the idea is you're in rally, you're, you're usually on a loose surface that doesn't have a ton of friction. And so you're managing traction in a very different way. And you can use upsetting the car to change direction of the vehicle uh, in, in the in, independently of the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. So anyway, all this to say, I, my first few years of performance driving were in this environment where I was like, okay, I'm going to jerk the car this way and it's going to spin the rear around and then I'm going to be pointed in the direction I want to go. So yep. Sammy, what do you think happened when I got to the first racetrack I'd ever been on with this mentality in mind? Uh, I would suggest that you probably lost control of the car, though. I, I didn't. I mean, uh, yeah, I did spin out a bunch of times when I was first learning, but primarily it made me slow. Okay, fine. And, if you if you if you adapt to the or you react to that loss of control quickly enough, you'll manage. Be, you'll be okay, but you'll end up being incredibly slow around the track. Yeah, the the, the thing that I had to learn was You're that fighting yourself. Well, driving fast doesn't look fast. No. If you look at someone's lap and they're sliding all over the place, they're you know doing hero um, uh, drifts through corners and stuff. It's very impressive and it's entertaining, but most of the time it's not fast unless you're extremely like I mean you look at the early days of Formula One or, or not even the early days the 70s and 80s guys like Gilles Villeneuve were constantly out of control in the sense that compared to modern cars which have so much aero and mechanical grip, these cars uh, in that era in F1 would slide around corners. But today, you don't see that so much. It's all about getting in and out of the corner uh, in the most controlled fashion possible. And it looks boring when when someone's driving a very fast lap. There's nothing exciting about it. And I didn't realize that I, I, I would get in the car and I'd have one hand on the shifter and one hand on the steering wheel. And Because in autocross, you're often shifting gears. And I remember um, one of my first instructors asking me how I was, you know, why I, what was more important, shifting the gear once or twice during a lap or having my hands on the wheels at all times so I could react to things that were, you know, right. more more pressing, I guess you could say. Yeah. So I had all these bad habits to unlearn. And that's where I learned that being smooth was was much quicker than not being smooth. And it all boils down to keeping the car balanced so that it, it's not upset. And Sam, what, what, what do you think I mean by upset, Sammy? Like, could you maybe, if you hear that when you're when you're thinking about driving, what does that suggest to you about a car? To to me, that usually means that's, that's a couple of things about the weight balance being too far in one in one direction, either front to back, or the grip being completely off on one of the one on some of the tires, on one of the tires, basically 
the vehicle not having sort of connection to the the right connection to the track or the the, the road surface. Um, and to me, that's what I what I understand a car being upset essentially. Yeah, that's that's a very very eloquent way to to describe it. It's it's definitely that that weight balance where the car's uh, mass is moving in the opposite direction to where you want it to be, mm-hmm. and it's pulling grip away from tires where you need to have grip. And the easiest way to get a car out of shape if it's moving very quickly is to introduce a very abrupt movement. And there's lots of ways right. you can do that. You can jerk the wheel to one side or the other. That's one way. You can hit the brakes very hard. And put all the weight on the front of the car. Or you can stab the gas when you're coming out of the corner. And that can overwhelm the drive wheels. If it's a rear-wheel drive car, that can move the rear end out. If it's a front-wheel drive car, that can cause you to understeer because the tires just can't steer and um, turn it. Sorry. They can't steer and provide traction at the same time. Mm -hmm. So all these things... They take you know a millisecond here, a microsecond there, whatever it is. They're slowly, slowly adding this time onto your lap. And I didn't understand that when I was first driving. And I had to the the one of the things that um, I found very helpful was the concept of slowing down my movements and yeah. slowing down my inputs. So when I came into a corner, instead of rapidly you know yanking the wheel from one side to the other. I would feed the wheel to one corner, feed the wheel to the other. And the same with the throttle. It's like a a gradual on and off. And I'm not saying there aren't times on a racetrack where you want to lift off the throttle. Like if you're correcting because you've come Mm -hmm. in too hot, you can lift off the throttle, which will move um, the weight in such a way that you can get a car closer to the apex a lot of the time. But that's a corrective thing that if you're doing that, that means you did something wrong. Uh, to get into the corner properly, it's all about maintaining as smooth a line as possible through the complete turn. And to do that, I had to slow my motions down. I had to make my inputs deliberate and I had to make sure I wasn't, I, I, I needed to time my turn input with what I was doing with the accelerator. Cause if you lift off the throttle while you're turning, you can often put mm-hmm. the, the, as you decelerate, you're putting more weight on the front of the car, which gives your steering a little bit better chance of biting and getting you through the corner. And I didn't realize that. And then when you're coming out of the corner, obviously you don't stomp on the throttle. You give it that same kind of gradual input. So roll you on, don't... you roll onto the throttle. I mean, exactly. We've heard that phrase. We've used that phrase. Um, so in the know, snow, in the snow, Sammy, yeah. I mean, this kind of stuff, you don't need to be driving at track speeds to benefit from it, right? No, the, the, tr- the limits are all lowered significantly when the, when the road surface gets, uh, messy, right? Right. Like essentially when there's rain, snow, mud, um, it just, it reduces the, the, the ceiling essentially of how much traction you can potentially take advantage of. Very much so. And so... It not only does it re- the reduction in traction amplifies your efforts, so mm-hmm. it's like the the more you jerk the wheel when it's slippery, the more you're going to see a car become upset because it's already scrambling for traction, and you're making it harder for it to get what little traction is there. Mm-hmm. And, um, sorry, go on. It it I do want to go back to your experiences on the track. I think you you definitely have more experience on the track than I do, and you also have some pretty um, track oriented gear that you that you take on the track. I think your your Datsun is pretty much a track weapon at this point. Um, but in my experience, learning again, same thing as you, going from you know having some experiences on auto track on autocross, where just as you mentioned, it is about getting from one corner to the other this really efficient fast way 
and you're kind of it always felt like you're scrambling a bit when you get to the track and you learn how to to drive on the track it turns it it make instead of it feeling like that you visualize the whole track um all together as being these like a very intricate dance from one spot to the next and when you're learning it i think you know, when you learn a new tr- a, a new track, I'm never nearly as I don't think it makes sense to be that smooth. I always find myself, you know, correcting or using brake a little too many times in a row, something like that, so that I can really dial in that that corner entry speed. But you know, eventually you want to get in this very smooth manner, not just with throttle and brake, but with your steering as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's you're you're. I think what you're describing is the difference between reacting to a track and driving a mm-hmm. track. Right. And when you're first, it's your first few laps around a new circuit, you're reacting to the elements that are being presented to you. I mean, there's ways around that. If you get the chance to walk the track prior to driving it, you'll have that mental map that you need to kind of reduce the amount of reacting you're going to do and, and be smoother from the outset, I think. It also helps when there's like pile, like breaking pylons and stuff. But when <laughs> going, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that's definitely helping. And even if you're someone who's very experienced, I always appreciate any type of, uh, not necessarily an apex cone because those can move. Yeah. Um, they could get knocked around. But like breaking, breaking indicators at the end of a straight, you want to have references. You want to have something that's fixed and isn't moving every single lap so that you can determine when you need to start your braking. Um, and that kind of reference for some people, you know, when they come out of a corner, there's a tree on the track they always aim for. For some people, it's something in the stands. If you're, if you're at a a larger track, but just having any kind of braking indicator is great. But, uh, you know, going back to the idea of reacting to a situation Mm -hmm. when you're in the snow and you're traveling at a higher rate of speed, like on the highway, we, sometimes you're going to react to a situation that either in front of you, someone breaks hard in that situation with reduced traction, you're kind of relying on ABS because you're going to want to hit the brakes hard to stop as soon as you can. And in a low traction situation, there's not much you can do there. But if you're going to be avoiding something that suddenly jumped in front of you, or if you're, you feel the car start to slide, this is another area where you want to be smooth to prevent things from getting worse than they already are. If you feel the rear end of a car sliding out on you and you want to steer into that skid you don't mm-hmm. slam the wheel over as quickly as possible because you'll end up upsetting the balance of the car in the other direction and mm-hmm. you'll make your situation worse the same thing is if you're on a snowy road and someone's slower in front of you and you need to change lanes unexpectedly you don't yank the wheel you want no. to give it that slow input and also if you pull your foot off the gas you want to do that gradually as well because as Sammy mentioned earlier, the limits are so much lower and it's so much easier to upset the car. And we see, I see so many people in the ditch because they didn't adjust for conditions and by not adjusting for conditions, they forgot to stay smooth. They ended up reacting. You get in over your head very quickly because one sharp reaction leads to another and that sequence, once it starts, you're never going to win until the vehicle I'm, is immobile. <laughs> I'm, I'm always so impressed when I hear that you see people in the ditch, um, first of all, you live in a place where snow tires are mandatory. Like they have, people have to have snow tires. I don't, where I live, that's not mandatory, but I do see a lot of people with four wheel or all wheel drive vehicles and they just treat their cars like they're, they can do whatever they, they ask from them. And even with winter tires, even with all season tires, uh, uh, sorry, all season, even with winter tires and all wheel drive, your car is still at the limits of, your your input right yeah and all-wheel so, drive doesn't help you break so no, you know it doesn't help you break at all right 
So it, it is so to me. Like I said, I'm impressed that I still see people managing to to overcome certain um, safety nets that they've given themselves, and uh, and still manage to upset the car. And that means that they must have been driving really reactionary, or they haven't given themselves enough um, space or time to react as smoothly as they needed to, and therefore upset the vehicle. I mean, space and time is super important in any kind of driving. It's something we forget. We get so used to the idea that we're, you know, we're driving on the highway and there's a thousand people on the same highway with us at the same time and everything's going to go fine. But when something doesn't go fine, you're going to appreciate the fact that you had maybe a little bit longer following distance or maybe you're not driving in a big pack of cars, you know. And in the winter, you can multiply that. It's Winter driving is really... Just a question of knowing the limits of your vehicle, knowing the limits of traction, and being comfortable with that, and not overdriving the in any of those aspects of your vehicle. Uh, it's so easy to overdrive a car, even on asphalt, uh, on a racetrack, it, and once you introduce snow or ice into the equation, it, it multiplies. Absolutely. And so it goes back to what we were saying. Um, we've said it a while back. High-performance driving schools are not just about track experience or, or going fast on the track. But they're about teaching you certain skills that um, can translate into your regular everyday driving and can keep you safe um, in really tough situations like that huge snowfall that we had recently. Yeah, I really recommend anyone taking any kind of performance driving course because it will make you not just a better driver on the on the street, but you'll feel more confident. And when you're more confident, you'll be safer. Because you'll know more about the limits of yourself and your vehicle. And once you do that, you'll stay within your envelope. If you're curious about winter driving and you, it's harder for it, – it, you don't necessarily find winter driving schools as easily as high-performance driving schools. But depending on where you live, you might find ice racing. And ice racing is something that I really enjoyed when I was younger – if you have a lake nearby or um, – I think it's um, – it's very rare to find an actual ice track that's not on a body of water. But it's a very cheap way to get a vehicle out there in the lowest traction situation you're likely to find. You don't need spiked tires. You don't need a crazy turbo or all-wheel drive vehicle. I've been out there in like a rear-wheel drive pickup truck and had fun. The whole idea is you get out on a track and you hopefully have an instructor with you. But – what you're doing is seeing you'll be driving like 15 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour and trying to find the the ability to control your car, planning out corners way in advance because you, you can't really use your brakes at the last minute like you would on a standard track. And it's, it's a really cheap way and safe way to learn about low traction driving because there's nothing to hit. You're on you're on a lake. It's like it's it's pretty safe. And you're not going to get going fast enough to really put yourself in any danger because you won't have the traction to do that. Um. We have a really good uh, school here. We should get... I don't know why we're not sponsored by a driving school. We should sort that out. I think um, it's because of your attitude, but I mean... Whoa, what I've about been my shouted style? Down what about, about my style, before. though? No, your style just doesn't overcome it. <laughs> what do you mean, my attitude? Um, okay. So if you uh, want to... We actually... I want to say one more thing. We uh, Speaking of performance driving, we had a, a listener reach out to us. Uh, quite recently, actually. Um, let me just pull up, pull up the message they sent here. It was... Um, why can't I find this? It was Brad, who invited Sammy and I to come down yeah. to drive on their Lemons team in their, their Forester quote-unquote track car. 
uh, sometime this summer. We are super excited about this. I wrote uh, Brad back today uh, to say thank you and that we'd love to do it. We, we have to wait until the um, various complications at the border have died down and make it a little easier for us to cross. But I think that's something that will probably happen this summer or this fall. And we'd love to uh, check out the lemon scene. I've never gone personally to a lemons event, let alone driven in one. And it would be a blast and we'd love to come back and tell everyone about it on an episode. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. I hope we can pull that off. That'd be great. If anyone else has any amazing offers they would like to make us, uh, we're always, we are always open. Thank you again, Brad. Uh, the, the best way to get in touch with us for those amazing offers, you can go to unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. You'll see a list of all our old episodes. There's uh, 260 now, I think. And more importantly, you'll find a contact box, which sends a message directly to us via email. You can email me directly, Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com, the old school way. Or you can find us on social media. Sammy is on the cesspool that is Twitter. You can find him at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. You can find me on the friendlier Instagram at HuntingBenjamin. Um, and while you're over there on our website, um, you can see all of our past episodes, stuff like that. You can subscribe really easily. Um, but you can also really subscribe even easier on your podcast client. Just search for us, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com or unnamedautomotivepodcast and uh, hit subscribe. If you get a chance, give us a review. We appreciate the feedback uh, and it helps other people find the podcast as well. It really now, does. If you really like what we're doing, um, and who doesn't really, you can head on over to our Ko-Fi page and tip us a little bit. It's ko-fi.com slash unnamedautomotivepodcast. And uh, Sammy, what are you going to be driving next week? I've got a, another comparison. This one that might be a little bit more relevant is the Nissan Pathfinder and the Subaru um, Ascent. Okay, I'm going to be talking about my time in the 2022 Volkswagen Golf R, which has been completely redesigned for this year. I'm looking forward to hearing that, and I'm sure our listeners will be as well. So I'll talk to you next week, my friend. All right. Thank you, everybody. Bye.